Hello everyone, welcome to Reason for Hope once again. Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast which is guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, you can send your questions into us through our various online platforms that we're streaming live to. And I will be receiving those questions and throwing them out here to our guests to dive into the Word to find the answers to those questions. So that's what we're all about here. If you have an honest question, could be a verse or passage of scripture, could be even something you're going through in your life, you'd like a, a biblical perspective, maybe even Christianity itself or um, other worldviews and other religions, really any honest question you have, as long as you know that the Bible is our source for those answers, then you are welcome to send those questions in. My name is Dave Robson, I'll be your host today and fielding all those questions as they come in with us today. Peter Martin over here, pastor and author, how are you doing today? Doing okay. You're doing good? Yeah. It's good to see you, thank you for making the time to be here and um, answering these questions. It's very brave and kind of you. Also with us, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing, sir? The internet continues to confound me. Oh yeah, tell us more. Well, all my life I never thought I would or wanted to see a crayfish riding a boot. But now you have. Here we are. Do you feel, fu do you feel fulfilled? I feel surprised, that's for sure. I feel surprised, I bet you do, I bet you do. Well, thank you for being here as well, both of you guys. We're looking forward to your questions and getting into the Word together. Um, as I mentioned, Reason for Hope is a live broadcast with you Monday through Friday, uh, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time here in Tucson. Or wherever you are in the world, you can join us through the wonders of the, the Internet. Um, such a glorious thing to reach you around the world. And like I say, you're welcome to send in your questions. It's an outreach of... Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. So you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. You'll find us live there if you follow that Watch Live tab. And while you're there on the website, just have a click around, especially if you're in the Tucson, Arizona area. If you're looking for somewhere to worship the Lord and fellowship, then you're welcome to come check us out. We have a bunch of uh, different groups and Bible studies and support groups and all kinds of events going on. So take a look around while you're there. But if you click on that Live tab, it will take you to our Live page. Uh, where we stream live to. When we're live, you'll see our faces there in the video and you'll be able to sign in with a username and uh, send your questions in in the chat function right there. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show and also a schedule of upcoming events. We're live uh, every day, so in one way or another. Um, the direct link for that is ccftucson.online.church, ccftucson.online.church to go directly there or again, follow the link from our website. We're on Facebook, of course. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. Um, don't forget to like and to share us. We'd appreciate that. And you can put your questions in the chat function and I will be monitoring those as well. So on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We have an app for your mobile device, whether that's iPhone or Android. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store and you can watch us on the app if you download that. We have a channel on Roku and on Apple TV as well. So if you have a smart TV or one of those boxes or devices, you can watch us on uh, the big screen as well. On YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. That's A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Once again, don't forget to like and subscribe and share and click the bell so you get notified when we're live and all that good stuff. And YouTube's a great place to go uh, for archive as well. If you click on that live tab anytime we've been live, uh, it will be archived there for you. So if you missed a show or you wanted to recap a question, um, then that's a great place to do that on YouTube. And again, don't forget to like and subscribe, share, all that good stuff. 
on YouTube for us. Uh, our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, he's not with us today. He's been with us uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at the moment. Uh, but he's on Twitter. You can follow him at ScottR4H. That's ScottR4H. And he posts highlights from the show, and he posts commentary on on um, world events from like a biblical and prophetic um, standpoint and all kinds of shenanigans. So follow with Pastor Scott on Twitter if you're a Twitter kind of person. And we're on Rumble as well. This is kind of a newer to us thing. If you look for a reason for hope, Bible Q&A. We're on Rumble. Right now we post archive there, but uh, we're hoping to go live on that platform if that uh, works out for us. So be prayerful about that as we expand. And last but not least, questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address. Questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com is our email address if you're listening to us on the radio you are listening to our last show that we did pre-recorded so we're not live with you so to speak but use that email address and we'll get to those questions on our next show so once again questions for hope at gmail.com is our email address and so send in your questions on those multiple platforms however you're joining us and i will be fielding those as they come on in get them in early we often run out of time so get your questions in we'll try and do a first comes first serve basis as far as i can and we certainly appreciate you being part of the show and providing that content for us so well before we go any further <laughs> sean would you like to pray for us today we'd love to pause and pray ask for the lord's blessing and guidance obviously would you like to do that are you game i'm game that'd be awesome dad thank you that we have the chance to be here we want to invite you to be here as well to speak your word to open our ears to recognize your voice and to be given hearts ready to receive and relate it, not only in a personal way, but especially including that. We're grateful that you've made yourself a part of our lives in these ways, and as you've equipped us for this ministry, allow it to be done in service to you and for your good pleasure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Peter Martin's here, and often you give us a bit of a book recommendation. Do you have a book to recommend today <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. Well, that's good uh, so th the book that I'm recommending is Pilgrim's Progress it was written by John Bunyan in the 1600s the late 1600s uh, really interesting kind of backstory to him writing this book and how it was released and things like that as well as just its general importance to Western literature in general some people consider it the first novel ever written in the English language mm. uh, but Bunyan was a pastor who was ironically persecuted not by secular atheistic people. He was actually persecuted by the Church of England. So uh, he was kind of violating some of their norms and preaching uh, particular sermons that they didn't like and ways that they didn't like, and so they locked him up in prison. Yes. And it was during his stint in prison that he wrote this really, really amazing book. Mm. Uh, now, Pilgrim's Progress is written from the perspective of someone who is recounting a dream, which makes it kind of a fascinating story. So the narrator is aware that the events that he is narrating didn't actually happen, mm. but he is recounting them as though he experienced them in a dream and is just simply telling us what he dreamed about, which makes the flow of the story really fascinating. It makes it really interesting and it actually kind of engaging. It just works for the story that is being told. It's an allegory for the Christian life and it's not subtle in its metaphors. So the main character is a guy named Christian. He is leaving a city called the City of Destruction. He um, is approached by a guy named Evangelist who tells him about the celestial city that will allow him to escape the coming doom that's uh, coming upon the City of Destruction and everything like that. So you can see these metaphors are incredibly in your face. They're very obvious, 
but it's my kind of level of yeah. reading, <laughs> which means it's actually a very good book for for kids. Yeah. I was telling Dave before the <laughs> story, or for me, or for Dave, you know, <laughs> who don't read. Uh, my parents actually bought like a version of it when I was a kid, where someone was reading the book, and while he was reading the book, there were still images that someone that an artist had rendered that illustrated portions of the book itself. And it was it was really interesting. I actually liked watching it as a child. I <laughs> I still remember the theme song. It was just it was just a wow. uh, really cool story. So, it is something that as a parent if you want to read your kid something, uh, I think this is a good book. I think this is actually uh, an engaging, it's an exciting story. Uh, it's filled with a lot of ins and outs and really really good messages throughout the book itself. Mm -hmm. uh, cuz remember in these book recommendations <clears throat> I try not to just uh, recommend books that I happen to like or books that uh, have a really good message, but books that are actually enjoyable to read, books that I actually believe people will like reading. It's the second best-selling book ever in comparison only to the Bible. So yeah. the Bible is the only book that has outsold this one. And it's just, like I said, very, very well written. It's, there's a reason why it's the best-selling book and very applicable for our day. So I just want to, there's so much I could dive into in this book because like I said, literally everything is a metaphor and the metaphors are easy to understand, right? It's easy to understand what the metaphor is going for, but each metaphor is very deep actually. There's, there's a lot of depth and there's a lot of nuance to everything that Bunyan is telling us and therefore it could actually give us a lot of help and encouragement in our own Christian lives. So the first symbol that I want to point out, and this is the main symbol of the book, is it's the allegory of the Christian life of being a journey of some sort. Mm. Now, the reason why I like it is for multiple reasons. The, the, the first one is the Christian life is about a journey to God. That's what it's about. Now, it seems, again, like I said earlier, the metaphors are really simple, but they're incredibly nuanced and profound. So if someone were to ask you, like, what's the purpose of being a Christian. What are you trying to accomplish? Some people would say, well, like, uh, you know, I'm here to share my faith. I, you know, I'm trying to become a more virtuous or good person. Um, I'm trying to represent God on this earth. Or, you know, you, there, there are various particular reasonings and uh, different things that you could say in answer to that question. But Bunyan's answer would be very, very simple. What's the purpose of life on this earth? To move towards God, right? So in his view of the Christian life, God is the treasure and God is the goal. He is the one that we are pursuing. The things that Christian does, right, Christian does become a more virtuous person as he goes along the journey. He does share his faith as he goes along the journey, but those are secondary, right? Those are things that happen to him along the way. Mm -hmm. They are not things that he is pursuing. The only thing he is pursuing is God. This is very much in keeping with 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God, uh, or Philippians chapter 3, which might be the main passage he's pulling this from, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Not that I have attained, nor am I perfected, but this I do, I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. What's Paul saying? The aim of my life is in the pursuit of Christ. Jesus has become a treasure to me, God has become a goal, and that is the thing that I am pursuing above all else, a relationship with God, nearness to him. And it's a good, again, it's just such a good reminder to us because we get caught up in various elements of our life. We get caught up in, uh, you know, our jobs and our careers and our relationships. We get caught up even in legalism of what I need to do in order to please God. And I forget that the main purpose of the Christian life is simply a pursuit 
of God. Yeah. Um, anything you'd like to, either of you guys like to add to that or? No, no, keep going. You're on the roll. Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> the, the other thing I like about the metaphor is it exposes the Christian life of being one of great difficulty. So a lot of Christians today present the Christian life as being something that is simple, something that's easy, handed to you. It's just really pleasurable, and it's joy, joy, joy all the mm. time, and it's super easy. I like how he presents the Christian life as being something that is difficult. It's tough. Yeah. Christian is constantly presented with tests, and a lot of those tests actually have to do with his sins. And I also like how he has different characters within the book. So Christian is the main protagonist, but he also has a friend. Uh, well, he has a first friend named Faithful who's martyred, and then he has another friend named Hopeful who sticks it out with him. And each of the friends, you could tell, they're tempted by different things. So they go mm -hmm. through the same obstacles, but the obstacles tempt them in different ways. So Christian's temptations, and it's pro possibly what Bunyan struggled with the most, he's uh, superimposing upon Christian. What Christian actually struggles with is self-doubt. Mm -hmm. He really struggles with being assured of himself, knowing that he's saved, knowing that he's good enough for God, uh, having the confidence that other people love him or care about him. He struggles with feeling lonely. He struggles with feeling a fraud, right? And these are the temptations that he goes through. The first temptation he goes through is called the slough of despondency, which is a lot of old English, but it basically is a, is a marsh. It's a swamp of being depressed, essentially, mm. right? Being despondent. Uh, he also goes through Doubting Castle, in which he's tortured by a giant named Despair, and he is tempted to commit suicide, right? So you see that Bunyan is, again, superimposing his own struggles upon Christian. But his friend Faithful, for instance, all of his temptations are sexual in nature, which I think is interesting. So when he goes through the same trials that Christian's going through, he doesn't doubt himself, but he's pulled by sensual pleasures. He's pulled to actually go astray from God in order to pursue sensual pleasure. Mm -hmm. So what I like that Bunyan is showing is that the Christian life is difficult for everybody, but the difficulty is different, right? We all have our different temptations. We all have our different struggles, but the difficulty is present no matter what your particular struggles might be. So I think that's incredibly encouraging. I think it's mm -hmm. a major disservice when a lot of Christian pastors present the Christian life in this soft soap kind of deal of, well, here are the virtues that God expects of you. And, you know, it's just kind of easy. You know, we just have faith in God and, you know, God says not to do this, so I don't do it. And it's really simple. And I share my faith and I, they make it sound so simple that a lot of people, when they come up against the reality of the Christian life, they become incredibly discouraged and they give up. Yeah. And I love how Bunyan just shows, no, this is really tough, man. Yeah. It is really tough. And with every obstacle, another thing that I like is that there's two ways to get out of it. So you could either go through the obstacle, right, like the slough of despondency or Mount Difficult or the Valley of Despair or the Valley of the Shadow of Death, right? You could either go through it or you could go around it. Mm -hmm. And there's two ways to go around it, and both ways lead to certain death. The only way to go through it is to go through it. And I love that because, again, whenever we go through a trial in the Christian life, there are ways, quote unquote, around it, right? So if I'm struggling with sexual temptation, well, what's a way around that? I could give into it, right? I could just give into my sexual temptation. Or I could adopt some sort of a legalistic mindset to get me around my sexual temptation. But both ways are going to lead me to destruction. Yeah. The only way for me to go through my temptations is to endure them, mm. right? This is 1 Corinthians 10.30, I mean, I'm sorry, 10.13, uh, not 10.31, 10.13, where he says, no trial has overtaken you except for that which is common to man. Right? Temptation is common to everybody. Right. But he goes on and he says, but with every temptation, 
God has given us a way of escape that we might be able to bear it, mm. right? So again, the way of escape is not, I don't struggle with temptation. The way of escape is a grace that enables me to endure the temptation, yep. that enables me not to be destroyed by it. That's the grace that God offers. Unfortunately, again, a lot of Christians present this as, well, God's just going to give you grace and it's not going to be a struggle anymore. And that's not true. It's not true for my life yep. and all the things that I struggle with. And I'm sure it's not true for your guys' lives as well. Right. Uh, anything you guys would like to add to that? Or? Yeah, it just reminded me of that. I don't remember the ministry that first coined the the, the phrase and line of, uh, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Mm. And I think they later changed it to God loves you and has a plan for your life. They yeah. kind of took the, <laughs> the wonderful out. Yeah. I mean, it is a wonderful plan, but right. I think that's false advertising in a sense. Yeah. You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, sign me up. And yeah. then, like you say, there's trials and there's, you know, chastening. This isn't so wonderful. Yeah. Not the wonderful. <laughs> it's some kind of wonderful. Right. You know. Um, but yeah, it's, like you say, it's very important that we that we know what we're signing up for, you know, that we're not misled. I mean, I guess that's prosperity gospel, you yeah. know, that you yeah. come, and there come are, to the Lord. There are facets of prosperity that are throughout Christian evangelicalism in the West, I would say. Um, you know, even in, you know, solid Bible-believing churches, again, there's a presentation of Christian virtue and Christian ethics that just seems easy. It just seems as though yeah. the pastor has got it and that it's simple for him, and that's just not the case, right? right? It's just not true. Right. Um, the, the final thing that I like about this metaphor is that it presents the Christian life as being tedious. Now, <laughs> I like that very much. So the journey, right, the, the idea of walking a journey, and, it, I, you know, I was in the military. Those of you guys listen to the show, you, you, you know this. I was in the Marines for four years, and we did a lot of hiking. You know, and the longest hike I ever did was, I think, 26 miles, and, you know, we had our full packs. So, you wow. know, the pack is like 100 pounds. And then we also had our, I was a mortar man, so you know, we had our mortar system. And, uh, you know, the tube of the mortar system is 35 pounds, the base plate's 28, oh the gosh. bipods are 27. And so you're sharing these pieces of metal between, uh, you're kind of swapping off like a relay race almost. And it's like, I'll, t I'll walk one mile with this tube and you walk free and then we'll switch back and forth for 26 miles, yeah. you know? And when you're going on a hike, I remember when we were at boot camp and we were being worked up to that because it's not like just day one you go and do a yeah, hike like it's that. It's a marathon, it's like, I mean. Yeah. yeah, it's like the first hike you do in boot camp is like five miles long and you're wearing a day pack, so it's like 20 pounds. And then you work your way up till you're able, your body's able to do something like that. And we would ask the drill instructors because the first hike, you know, you do five miles with a 20-pound pack and you feel like you're going to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. And you come back, you're like, we have to do a 20-mile hike with – five times the weight yeah. like there's no way we're gonna be able to do this is there a, a secret you know is there some sort of a, a hint or a strategy or technique <laughs> yes. and suck it up and yeah our, our <laughs> drill instructor was like well there is a secret you put one foot in front of the other until you get to the end and it's like super disheartening but in the christian life especially as a counselor when i'm seeing people they want me to give them some like divine providential piece of wisdom that they've never heard before that will allow their burden to just lift off of them and their life to become easy. Yeah. And the truth of the Christian life is that the principles that enable you to get from where you are today to being more Christ-like are really simple. Mm. They're simple enough that a child can understand them, but you have to implement them every day. You have to do it one step at a time. And that tediousness is what burdens people and what discourages people from doing the right thing. Mm. It's not the difficulty in the sense of complexity of the Christian life that deters people. It's actually the simplicity 
combined with the consistency mm. that deters people. Mm. Uh, that's why self-control is the final fruit of the Spirit, right? It's the final aspect of love that's given to us in Galatians 5.22. It's because self-control holds all the others together. It yeah. really does. Yeah. You have to be able to control yourself and to practice these simple virtues over time, and they expand over time. Mm. So there's, you know, and I've, I've talked to many couples, and they'll say, like, what's the, what, what do I do to make my marriage better? And I'm like, well, you already know what to do, but I'll give you a one-word answer to that question, consistency. Mm. Do these things consistently, and you will see progress, I guarantee you. The problem that you're having is it's not you don't know what to do, it's you're not doing it or you're doing it for a season and then you're stopping. You know, you're doing kind of like the, the New Year's resolution, I'm gonna work out every day for the rest of my life, and then you do it through half of January and then you're done. You know, yeah. if, you, if you want results, if you wanna grow, it's just being consistent. And that's another reason why he employs this particular metaphor. Um, you guys wanna add anything to that? All right. Yeah. Cool. So I thought it'd be interesting to go through just a couple of the places that he goes. So the first part of the book uh, covers Christian's part of the journey. And the difficulty is that he learns about the city of destruction. He's told about the fact that he's in a place that's going to die, essentially, that, that everyone in his city is going to die. And he learns it from, again, a guy named Evangelist. He reads it in the, essentially the Bible. And he discovers he wants to leave, but his wife and his family do not want to go with him. So in the first part of the journey, he has to actually leave his wife and kids in order to go on this journey alone. Mm -hmm. And then he makes it to the celestial city. The second part of the book is his wife and kids realize that he was right and they go after him and they make it to the celestial city so both parts of the book are really cool uh the first part is much better i would i would just say because the second part they're going through the same trials as christian just it's different people going through it mm -hmm. so it feels a little redundant the benefit of the second part of the book is that bunyan is given the liberty to elaborate on a lot of the metaphors that he himself had made earlier in the book and mm -hmm. give a lot more clarity to him. So it's uh, really, really excellent. So going through it, there's a pattern in the book in which there's an obstacle and then there's a refreshment. So there's something that the Christian has to go through that almost devastates them. And then there's some sort of a refreshment that God gives them on the other side. Now, I love that because that is the pattern of the Christian life. Yeah. You're going through, you're either going through a time of refreshment or you're going through a time of difficulty. And it, what, what I love about it is that Christian is always there to notice what season he's in, and he's there to receive whatever benefit he can get from whatever season. So in the seasons of difficulty, he's trying to learn how to be faithful to God in difficulty. And in the seasons of refreshment, he's trying to learn how to enjoy God in refreshment as opposed to forget him. So one of the, the things he has to do is he has to go over this mount called the Mount Difficulty, right? <laughs> Obviously. So he's going up Mount Difficulty, and there's an arbor halfway through. It's no Lord of the Rings, uh, yeah. is it? So it's, <laughs> it's not Mordor and, you know, Mount Doom. No. Yeah. What, uh, so what should we expect on this yeah. mountain? <laughs> so he's going up this mountain, and he finds an arbor halfway through. And an arbor, for those of you guys who aren't you know, old English speakers, it's just an arch, right? So it's an archway with like flowers and stuff like that. And so he sees it, he lays down, he refreshes himself, and he reads. So in the beginning, he's given like a scroll that tells him about where he's going in the celestial city. And it's also his passport to get there. And we'll talk more about what this passport is in a second. But he's reading it to refresh himself, and he falls asleep. 
And then an angel wakes him up and says, you, you got to get going, man. Like it's almost nighttime and you, you need to get to the top of this mountain. He wakes up and he forgets the scroll and he goes to the top of the mountain and he realizes he forgets it. Mm. So he has to double back, get it, and then keep going forward. Now it's again, really obvious metaphor, but incredibly nuanced. What's Bunyan saying? Mm. It's so easy in a time of refreshment to forget God. Yeah. It's so easy to take the grace of God for granted and to forget that God is trying to do something enjoyable in your life. He's yeah. trying to give you refreshment. He built the arbor for Christian, but Christian, instead of being refreshed by it, he was stumbled by it. Mm -hmm. And we want to be very careful that we're not stumbled by the blessings of God, which sounds so weird to say, but it's true. Oftentimes, the things that defeat Christians the most are prosperity, not adversity. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember who said this, but I, I, I found it to be true. He says, any man can handle adversity if you strengthen his character enough, but prosperity is what really stumbles people, mm -hmm. prosperity and power. And again, it's, it's very accurate for the Christian life, for just life in general, that you go through good times, you get a little full of yourself, yeah. you forget the things that got you there in the first place, mm -hmm. and you neglect God. So um, again, any, anything you guys want to add to that idea? Nope. Nope. Awesome. A another really cool metaphor is that Christian has a burden that on his back, so some sort of a giant weight that he's carrying, and it's a clear metaphor for sin. Now, early on in the book, as he's going on this dangerous journey, he runs into a guy named Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, oh, you know, evangelist, he's, you know, selling you something that's not true. He's telling you to go through this wicked gate, which is a clear, uh, by the way, is a, a clear metaphor for the gospel, right? To actually receive grace and salvation through the cross. And he's like, you know, he's telling you to go through this wicked gate, but I got a better place. You can go instead, instead of going to this place called the Wicked Gate, you know, you could go to this place called, um, I'm trying to look for it real, real quick. Uh, it's called Mount Sinai, right? <laughs> Literally, it's called Mount Sinai. And he says, you could find my friend, Mr. Legality, and his son, Civility, and they will help you off with a burden. Well, what's the, what's the message there? Once you become aware of your sin problem, the first temptation that arrives inside of a Christian's life is to try to alleviate the bondage of sin through their own uh, power, essentially, through their own strength. I'm going to become good enough to rid myself of this burden. And so Christian starts going there, and he ends up almost dying, and Evangelist tells him, hey, to go to the Wicked Gate. He goes to the Wicked Gate, he encounters the cross, and the burden falls from his shoulders and goes into the an open grave. And then he receives the scroll, which is his passport into the celestial kingdom, which I talked about earlier. Now, later on in the story, he meets a guy named Ignorance. And Ignorance doesn't have a scroll. And Christian says, well, didn't you go through the wicked gate? And he goes, well, no, but I'm a pretty good person. I think I can make it to the celestial kingdom, same as you. So he goes with them the entire length of the journey. He makes it to heaven. And when he gets to heaven, the person at the, the gate says, well, where's your passport? He says, well, I don't have one. I think I'm just a good person and they bind him and they throw him in hell, right? And so it's, it's, again, this pretty clear picture of legalism is, again, it's such a strong temptation for a Christian to fall into. Yeah. I feel bad. I feel desperate. I feel guilty over the things that I've done in my past. How do I get rid of my guilt? How do I get rid of my shame? And most Christians, even Christians who believe in the gospel, alleviate their guilt not through forgiveness, not through the pursuit of God and forgiveness through the cross, but through works mm -hmm. of restoration. I'm going to work until I feel good about myself. Yeah. I'm going to try to make up for what I did wrong. 
that mentality will never get you right with God and it will never actually alleviate the burden of sin. Yeah. So I, again, I really profound metaphor for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, final thing that I want to bring up, uh, he, he goes to a place called the interpreter's house. The interpreter is in the second part uh, revealed to be the Holy Spirit. And I, and I love that. I love how the Holy Spirit is portrayed in this story and how the Holy Spirit interacts with Christian. And what happens is the Holy Spirit uh, the interpreter, right, the Holy Spirit, starts showing him obvious things, things that Christian is aware of, and he starts showing him what these mean in pertaining to his journey towards God. And I love it, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. We are seeing, as a, as an, even a non-believer, you're seeing the elements of the gospel played out in front of you uh, all the time, right? You mm-hmm. see elements of love, you see justice, you see goodness, you see mercy, you see grace, right? You're, you're aware of all of it, you just don't know where it comes from. And because you don't know where it comes from, you don't know how it would help you towards God. You know how those things might help you in your life, but you don't know how they help you towards God. Mm-hmm. And so the interpreter starts showing Christian obvious things, and he's revealing the message underneath. And this is, again, one of the works of the Holy Spirit within the Christian. They come, the Holy Spirit comes within you, and he starts revealing to you truth that you were previously blinded to. And my favorite thing that he shows him is Christian goes into a room that's covered in dust, right? It's just a complete mess. It hasn't been in, uh, no one's been living in it for years. Mm-hmm. And the interpreter says, hey, send someone in, they could dust the room. And so this woman comes in, she starts dusting the room. What does it do? It just fills the room with dust, right? It's just all in the air. And Christian starts breathing it in and he starts suffocating on the dust. And the interpreter says, hey, bring someone in with some water, sprinkle the room. And someone comes in with water and sprinkles the room and it settles the dust and Christian can breathe again. Mm. And he says, why did you bring me in here? What's going on? And he says, I need to teach you a lesson about sin. And he says, when a man is corrupt from the inside out, one of the first things he's going to try to do is clean himself up. Mm. But when he cleans himself up, all he does is stir up the grime and the dust within his life and it Mm. begins to suffocate him. And he says, but the water represents the grace of God. If you clean utilizing the grace of God, it will simultaneously wash the sin without kicking up the dust, mm-hmm. right? It gives you the ability to pursue holiness without being destroyed by it, in other words. Yeah. And he says, the final thing I want you to learn from this lesson is no matter how dirty a man's soul becomes, there is nothing that grace cannot cleanse. So it's, again, just a really beautiful metaphor, just really simple. Anyone can understand it, yeah. but just incredibly deep and profound. Um, yeah. So, again, there's more I could say on the book. I think it's fantastic. I strongly encourage people to read it. But you guys have any last thoughts about it before we jump into the questions? No. Effective communication doesn't always have to be subtle, and I think he executed that beautifully. It's a good story. Yeah, nice. And that probably comes up a lot in counseling, what you just said about, because um, I know I've, you know, but in counseling, it can be exhausting because yeah. you're bringing this stuff up, and especially if you're just bringing stuff up for it to, you know, reinfect you yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a friend who's going through counseling as well, and that they agreed, like, it's, I'm just exhausted with going through what's wrong with me, you know, and bringing right. that stuff up. But right. without the grace of God as well to, to truly cleanse that, That's it, right. can be, uh, it can be uh, the uh, grace, the reminder that you're accepted and loved. Yeah in spite of your sin. Otherwise, again, that legalism just takes over and it becomes just, I need to fix myself. Right. And it, it makes you worse than you were before. Yeah, yeah. So why was it that the Church of England was so against uh, John Bunyan? Uh, so they weren't against him in, in like a grand, I mean, they did throw him in prison, but he, he was basically- he was, <laughs> I would say they're pretty against yeah, him in prison. He was violating their strictures. So they had to like really strict ways because they were 
essentially setting themselves up as a different system apart from Rome. Um, mm -hmm. So when the Protestant Reformation happened, obviously there were all these different branches of Protestantism that creeped up. The Anglo-Saxon church within England started to establish itself under the monarchy of the English crown. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, this is it. This is the Church of England. You know, you, you cannot be other denominations within our country. And so Bunyan didn't like that, and he was not really affiliated with them, and he was mm -hmm. still trying to preach. And they didn't like that too much, and they they threw him in prison. So, gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. <laughs> so it's not just the Catholics who persecuted other yeah. believers. Yeah. Uh, uh, Protestants did it too, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Well, once again, we were talking about the Pil Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, that Peter was recommending that book for you guys. Thank you, Peter, for that. Appreciate appreciate you uh, sharing all those things. I need to start reading some of these books. You do. I, I really do. <laughs> uh, well, we have some questions coming in. You guys ready to? Delve into that. Let's do it. A uh, question from Michael. He says, hey guys, what's the best way to honor your mother and father as an adult? Great question. Yeah, the idea, obviously, when people get concerned about this is, you know, what if my parents aren't necessarily honorable and we think it's just in a perception of them? While it is true that the first commandment that gives us a promise with it, that you'll live long in the land, does in fact include recognizing authority because, and we've talked about this is true in dating lives as well, your standard for relationship starts with the first earthly relationship you will have with anybody. If you have a poor relationship and perception and regard for your parents, that's going to bleed over into your regard and respect for your spouse and ultimately for God. The people who have the hardest time in a relationship with God are those who either have poor relationships with their fathers or, of course, uh, were given a poor model of that heart of God every time Scripture draws attention to that. But when we have that regard for those put in authority over us, it obviously starts with your parents, and that doesn't stop when you move out. That's the first thing. The second thing is that how this was applied in Jewish history is evident and even explained again in the New Testament, where the Apostle Peter notes that we are obliged to obey and pay back literally, in some translations, our parents. The idea was to take care of them in old age. Obviously, this has historical connotations. We live in a society where we can pay people to do that for us and rest homes and so forth. But with the idea of a community and a close-knit family, the best way to do it in any cultural setting is to not only establish a positive relationship with your parents, regardless of your emotional experiences with them, even if it's for their own sake that you're keeping distance from them, that you don't disdain them or talk down to them. That's a way you can do that later in life, and also much, hopefully, later in their lives to be a, a source of support and uh, help when they need it. Obviously, this isn't a commandment against rest homes or retirement homes, but having many conversations with elderly folks, they would have much more preferred to have spent their time not only with their kids, but their grandkids in particular. That would be another way of honoring your parents, the idea of taking care of them later in life. Yeah. Uh, any other examples? Uh, no, no, I think you hit it. Um, just one thing I'll, I'll clarify that you mentioned earlier of, you know, what if my parents aren't honorable? You know, um, in our culture, we tend to have this weird tendency to believe that exceptions disprove rules, and that's just not true. When we're looking in the Bible, what it has is it has ideals, right? Things that should be done, 
under normal circumstances, but there are exceptions to the ideals because we don't live in an ideal world. So a uh, classic example of this is Matthew 19. Jesus gives the ideal of marriage. He says, have you not read that in the beginning God created them husband, uh, man, and, uh, sorry, man and woman, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the ideal. No divorce ever. But then yeah. the Pharisees press him, and they say, well, why in the law what, did Moses give us the ability to divorce? And he says, because of the hardness of your hearts, this was permitted, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that there's an ideal, there's a standard, you should not divorce ever, but we live in an unideal world in which unideal things happen, and you have to be able to respond to them. So if something really drastic happens, namely adultery, you should have the ability to divorce your spouse because they violated the covenant in their actions, yep. and you then are free to dissolve it in your actions. That's the idea there. So same thing with parents. There's an ideal. You ought to honor your father and mother. And that goes along with everything that Sean is saying, giving them respect, giving them dignity, and hopefully helping them in financial and practical ways, right? Especially as they get older. That's the ideal. However, that doesn't always happen, right? There are egregious sins that can occur within someone's life that make that impossible. So for instance, if, what if you're dealing with a parent that is abusive to you, that has molested you and is verbally and physically abusive? Should you give them respect? Should you give them honor in this way? And the answer is no, you shouldn't. You should press charges against them. You should get them incarcerated if possible because there's justice in this world that we have to pursue. And God gives us the ability to do that through the state and through other avenues that are at, at our disposal. And the ultimate justice goes to him. So there's, again, the ideal, and then there's the exceptions. The problem is, is that because there's an exception, like I said, most people in our culture say, well, there is no rule then. There is no ideal. And therefore, well, you know, my parents, they sometimes yelled at me or they mistreated me, so therefore I don't have to respect them because Peter said that there are exceptions to the rule, and that's the <laughs> exception. No, no, no. We're talking about egregious missteps yeah. in the parenting relationship. We're not talking about common malpractice within parenting, which happens all the time. We're talking about egregious missteps. We're talking about physically beating you. We're talking about emotional abuse that's ongoing, prolonged, and unrepentant of. Mm -hmm. uh, or we're talking about sexual abuse. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. In those cases, yes, a child does not have to or should not, I, I would even go further, you should not uh, expose yourself to abuse yeah. in the name of trying to uphold this standard uh, because it, it no longer applies in that way. They violated the parent-child relationship through their malpractice. But again, it has to be egregious behavior. It can't just be, well, my dad lied to me once, or he sometimes breaks his promises, or you know, one time he disciplined me and he went too far. He actually hurt me. Well, okay, those are bad. Hopefully he's repented of those things. But even if he hasn't, that's not enough to sever your ties to your parents and your responsibilities towards them. So. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> My pastor back in England, I remember him saying, you know, honoring our parents is sometimes as simple as just keeping our mouth shut. You know, even if these things happen, doesn't mean everybody has to know about it. You know, mm -hmm. that's a way we can honor them um, by not gossiping about them, I guess, you know, that kind of thing. So there's, like you were saying, Sean, there's, there's many levels. Yeah, there's, there's levels of that we can honor 
um, right. each and like other. Like I said, you know. if it goes too far, right, you, you should tell someone, right? You should, yeah. Yeah. You should see. But I, I, I just totally I don't mean keep your mouth shut to everybody. Right, right. No, I mean, yeah. yeah, but yeah you should but tell not, someone, but not everybody. Yeah. yeah. But not airing your dirty laundry. Right. Especially if if it was something that happened early in your Like, let's say your your dad was an alcoholic when you were a kid yeah. and, and later sobers up. You shouldn't be like, just tell, man, my dad's just such a drunk and he's a loser. And he's right. Like, yeah, like, yeah. No, I totally get the yeah, point. Gossip, basically. Yeah. yeah. But yes, absolutely. Don't, don't, I don't want to misstate that, that you shouldn't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. We Keep believe that in. in. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> deep, deep down inside. No, absolutely not. Uh, well, uh, Michael, thank you for that question. Great question. Hope that helps you out. It's a great discussion. Uh, a question here from uh, Nathana. It's a great name. I've never heard that before. Uh, Revelation 1.14. When John says his hair was white like wool, is this the color or his texture? Or I guess both. Um, and is this literal? Is there a deeper meaning to that? Revelation 1.14. Yeah. Uh, in prophecy, especially with symbolic descriptions, obviously <coughs> there's three rules you need to keep in mind. First, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense lest you believe in nonsense, meaning if it can be real, literal, plain, then it probably is. Secondly, if it hasn't been explained before as far as the significance of that, it's about to be. If it has been explained before, it won't be. This isn't explained later, so we'll go into the Old Testament and note the reason why Jesus is described as white hair. And the third is, of course, references, references, references. Revelation quotes more of the Old and New Testament before it than there are, I guess, verses just on their own. It's like a three-to-one uh, division if you're going to get fractional about it. The appearance of Jesus with hair white as wool is not just a callback to the gospel accounts, but that's a callback further to the glorious man that appeared to Daniel in his prophecies, and that was rightly identified as God. So that's firstly why Jesus had white hair, to identify him with this previous revelation that was explained to be God. The second reason why it's white and why we think it's literal is because people can have white hair. That's not nor unnatural. Yeah. In fact, that is the that. most natural thing in all of humanity. But the fact that, you know, Jesus is getting older or he's like creaking out, that's not the idea. The significance of this is actually in the book of Proverbs. Uh, it's mentioned twice, but the one that's relevant here is Proverbs 16.31. Uh, you can read a lot of translations. The King James one might come across as weird. It uh, says the hoary head is a crown of glory. That has other connotations today. Yeah. But most translations refer to it as a gray hair or even a silver-haired head. That's the New King James translation. That's the idea. It says, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. So obviously, you know, you get gray hairs. It means you cared. It means you worried. It means you got a lot of mileage under the belt. But an old evil man, it's just that, evil. But a guy who earned his gray hair by doing things right in life, that's a glory to him. It means he yeah. lived his life well. Right. So in Jesus having hair white as wool, it's this idea of him having lived the perfect life mm -hmm. in light of Proverbs terminology. It's a reference to a, uh, excuse me, a revelation of God that's repeated again in the Gospels and the Old Testament where it started. And of course, in the fact that it couldn't be literal, that's ridiculous. Everyone will have gray hair should the Lord tarry and uh, nothing incidental happens to us in childhood. Right. Yep. Anything to add to that, Peter? No? no Thanks, Sean. That was great. Uh, Nathana, thank you for that, that question. Hope that helps you out. Thanks for being part of the show today. A uh, question from Ubi, Ubi. I don't know how you pronounce it. Your guess is as good as mine. 
but another great name. Uh, when Jesus told Peter, if it is his will that he remains alive until I tarry, mm. what is that to you? You follow me. Why did he tell Peter that? What does that mean? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's really fascinating, kind of a funny. I, I always laugh when I read it. I think it's really funny. I think John's gospel, John doesn't get enough credit for his humor. He, he has this, like some <laughs> funny stuff within his gospel account, and this is definitely one of them. So essentially what happens is after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Jesus reaffirms Peter in the ministry that he had given him prior to his crucifixion. Because if you remember, Peter was being set up to be one of the apostles, right? Mm -hmm. To be one of the 12 that was going to be the head of this movement that Jesus was establishing on the earth. And eventually it had heavenly implications as well that Jesus told them about during his earthly ministry. Now, after Peter betrayed Jesus by denying him three times in the garden, there's a lot of insinuation within the narrative that Peter did not count himself worthy to be a part of the 12 anymore. And he was possibly trying to go back to being a fisherman. So when Jesus meets Peter post-resurrection, Peter is back on the Sea of Galilee fishing again, which seems to mean that he is, again, counting himself unworthy of his apostleship and going back to being a fisherman. And Jesus has a really similar encounter that he had with him when he first met Peter earlier on in his earthly ministry. It's, it's a really beautiful section, to be sure, and I encourage you to read through the whole thing. But after that, Jesus reaffirms him. He allows Peter to reaffirm his love for him three times. Peter denied him three times. He reaffirms his love for Jesus three times. And then Peter uh, is told by Jesus, not only are you still going to have the ministry that I originally intended for you, you're forgiven for what you've done, you're reestablished as an apostle. Um, he, he even intimates that I never really told you you couldn't be an apostle anymore, right? In fact, he told him the opposite. He said that Satan has prayed, that has asked for you, that he could sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that after you have done this, you will be restored and you will restore your brethren. So Jesus had even told him previously, this is not going to defeat your faith. It's not going to defeat your ministry. You will be restored. But at any rate, he says to him, hey, when you were young, you were able to kind of do whatever you wanted. But when you get old, people are going to bind you and they're going to take you somewhere you don't want. <laughs> and John says that Peter understood that what Jesus was saying is you're going to be killed. You're going to be executed. That's what I'm saying. Mm. You were free before you knew me. You can kind of do whatever you wanted. Now you're going to have this ministry and it has a lot of perks. There's a lot of beauty yeah. in serving me. But one of the negatives is you will be martyred for your faith. People will eventually capture you and they will beat you and they will crucify you, actually, is what's going to happen to you. And Peter, being, again, uh, just kind of a, I, I love Peter, man. He is not just because I share his name, but because he, he does remind me a little bit of myself. I would probably say something like this, where he's like, what? I'm going to be crucified? Well, what about that guy, right? He points at John. And he's like, what What about him? You know, what? Why, why are you only telling me I'm going to be crucified? And Jesus is like, what is it to you? if I allow him to live until I return again. So in other words, he's like, I'm coming back. You know I'm coming back. Well, maybe I'm going to come back and John's still going to be alive. What is it to you if that happens? You follow me, Peter, yeah. right? Don't worry about what I'm doing in that guy's life. So uh, John has to then establish that a myth, kind of like a myth started circulating in the church because Jesus said that, that John would live until Jesus returned. And John says, that's not true. That's not what Jesus is saying. He was just making a statement of what is it to Peter if uh, I am intended to live longer than him or yeah. live until Jesus returns, meaning that he wouldn't die at all. Uh, it shouldn't bother Peter that that Jesus has different plans for different people. So that, that's essentially what the story is all about. Anything you'd like to add or clarify on that? Well, when it comes to the 
I guess just clarifying boundaries not to take this too far when Jesus says if he should remain until I come again this isn't a prediction that Jesus would return before John's time or a denial that there would be anything future before the uh, second coming of Christ there's some preterist groups that try to use that and say uh, it was the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus return was symbolically fulfilled that's not the point of this passage another error that's oftentimes made is and I wouldn't even necessarily even call it an error, the idea that it was an envy of calling. Uh, we want to be narrow in definition, but broad in application. You see pastors that want to say, just don't focus on other people's ministries. Have what the Lord's in front of you there. Wasn't the point of what he was talking to him about, but it is a fair point, a valid biblical point. Peter's attention was merely in that setting being drawn back to the fact that he was restored and that, of course, that was going to cost him something, but also showcasing the fact that God had done a work in his life even in the month or so that it had been since they'd last interacted with each other. Probably week, actually. But the point being made is this. When this situation was taking place, John's fulfilling something that was set up earlier in the gospel and John's gospel in particular is to prove theology so if Jesus is predicting his death that's another sign of prophecy of noting your calling and in, by the way it's the same thing that was laid out to other prophets before him like Jeremiah and Ezekiel mm -hmm. so that's the theme that's going on there Jesus is showing his nature as God and then Peter is of course as Peter stated showing his showcasing his nature as man, but still noting John's uh, all-too-honest willingness to admit things about Peter now that he was dead. That, uh, of course, is another license for, I guess, saying what you want about someone you had a bit of a rivalry with. Uh, we didn't need to know, John, that you outran Peter to the tomb, but he gives us that detail. Yeah. And uh, John's gospel, by the way, the only one that mentions Peter by name is the one that cut Malchus's ear off. So John... Uh, John has some things, in, if, if Peter has some things in common with Peter, this John, Sean is another way of saying John, has a lot of things in common with John. I'm an instigator myself, so. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, he doesn't get enough credit for his comedy. You know? None <laughs> of us do. He does bring it in there. Yeah. It's a, it's a really simple but, I guess, significant part of maturing where we can just serve the Lord without looking around. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, even, I saw it last night my kids were cleaning up the kitchen and my son had kind of wandered off into another room and my daughter had lost focus and she was getting distracted and I said to her like hey, you know no. keep well yeah yeah believe it or not <laughs> I said to her like keep working and she said well what about him yeah. you know what about he's gone into a whole other room you know but even for myself we're, we're all on staff here at Calvary Christian Fellowship and you can fall into that like well I'm doing all you know what's what's Peter doing today what's Sean doing today like why am I here and that, you know you can start looking around you know even at my ripe old age you know <laughs> it is such a little subtle thing that can creep in we compare ourselves to other people instead of just serving the lord in that way you know but um uh, anyway great question thank you for that uh, question from uh, ishmael uh who's calling you out by name peter P uh, peter martin wouldn't it be better if like, this probably goes back to what we're talking about with the book recommendation but wouldn't it be better if we were alive back then being a christian in the early days was better we are too busy these days with all the jobs that have been created, wouldn't it be better to have been alive back then? Was it easier to be a Christian back in the day? or For the people that were called to it? No. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I've mentioned on the show before that I'm philosophically a conservative, and what that means is I have a predisposition to value past wisdom over present solutions. 
Uh, now, a lot of people who are conservative, uh, either politically or, like I said, philosophically, the tendency is to believe that things were better back then right. than they are now. And that's why, unfortunately, a lot of Christians who Christians tend to be conservative because we believe in a faith that's very old, right? So it just makes sense that, you know, if you're reading a book that the newest parts of it are 2,000 years old and you're dedicating your life to studying it, you, you have to have some conservative tendencies to you in order to be able to enjoy that for sure. Uh, but it makes you a little retrogressive and it makes you uh, a bit of a stick in the mud, right? You, you yeah. can't see new things as being positive. That's one of the negatives of being conservative for sure. So uh, when someone says, wouldn't it be easier to have lived in this time or that time? You got to look at it in a, in a more complex way. There were a lot of things that would have been easier about living in that time. Uh, but also you got to think living at that time in what way, right? So uh, yeah, living in the 1600s as being a faithful Christian, there were a lot of positives to that that we don't have today. They were living in a culture that was very much pro-Christianity. They were living in a culture that was on the up. Me and Adrian were talking about the Renaissance period, which is around the time where uh, John Bunyan is writing Pilgrim's Progress, right? So the, the culture is really expanding. There's a lot of beauty there. There's a lot of goodness coming out of it. Uh, there, it's a very exciting time. There was a lot of innovation for sure. The, the, the world wasn't completely explored at that time. There was a lot of new places to go. Uh, you know, nowadays there's not really many new things you can do. So you could yeah. be, feel kind of lame. So th there's a lot of good positive things I could point out about the 1600s and being in England and why that would be so amazing. But then there's also, you know, life expectancy is like 30, you know, yeah. <laughs> like they didn't have any antiseptics. Yeah. Uh, most kids died before they were at the age <laughs> of 10. Died from the cold. Uh, died from the age of cold. I, I did mention that John Bunyan was put into prison uh, for simply disagreeing with the Church of England on pretty minor things. Uh, so the the threshold for persecution was a lot lower yeah. back in the day, especially they were on the heels of a civil war where they tried to oust the monarchy at that point. So th there, there are things you could say, well, it was, it was better, but then there are also things you could say, well, it was, it was worse. What we can do in the present day, if we recognize the beauty of the past, but we also recognize the beauty of the present, is we can try to the best of our ability to incorporate the wisdom of the past into the present goodness that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. What we don't want to do is become retrogressive to believe, well, it was just everything was better in the past. Well, that's not right. true. There were things that were better in the past, and maybe the things that were better in the past outweigh the good things that we're experiencing in the present. Uh, me personally, I don't believe that. Mm. I, I, I am living, even though I'm kind of middle class, uh, I am living a much more prosperous life than even wealthy people were living 50 years ago. Right. Right. I could click on Amazon and get something delivered to me today. Right. That's yeah. that's amazing. You know, I could I could drive in a vehicle. We, we me and my family just traveled to California. Uh, you know, it's like 400 miles or something like that. We did it in a day. Right? Yeah. You, you couldn't do that in the 1600s. We went to Disneyland. That didn't exist in 1600s. Right? So there's there's so many things that I love about the present moment. But there are also so many things that I can appreciate about the past. So I think we need to be balanced in that view. But I, I think a very good question, a very good point mm -hmm. to have. Yep, yep, absolutely. Anything to Let me read uh, Acts 17, 26. Uh, Paul speaking to Greeks, not Christians. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. There goes the geographical preferences. And has, remember, God causing men to dwell, determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. For what purpose? So that they should seek the Lord 
not other boundaries, not other times, that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God has us here. Longing for there is wasting time. Very good. Well, like I said, you can you can pull from the past. Yeah, you can it's, learn from it. It's but. bad to, to be lustful of what you don't have because that's a recipe for frustration. But it is good to, to look back and to have a bit of nostalgia and to say, yeah. wow, they, like, they, they really did get this right. They really did know what men were and what women were back in the 1600s. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, they, they didn't have Drag Queen Story Hour. That's kind of cool. You know, they, you know, so they, there are things that they, they had a bit better. worse, though. They had the Temple of Aphrodite. Right. Not in, the, not in the 1600s. But, oh, but, um, but we're talking about this stuff. Right, right. Um, so, again, there, there were things that were better and that there are things that are that are worse. And we got to yeah. be able to separate that out. So real quick, a, a minute question, literally a minute question. <laughs> yeah. Mac D asked, uh, was Mary just a normal mother who wasn't religious and a regular person? If so, why did the Lord choose her to be the one? Well, first literally of all, uh, she had a, I guess, sense of priorities in life where she preserved her virginity in a culture and environment that didn't really care either way. Uh, the Nazarenes weren't well thought of, yet she, according to Luke one twenty seven, kept her virginity and her betrothal to David. Uh, she is also referred directly by the angel yes. Gabriel. Or, yeah, what did I say? Yeah, David. No, David, thank you. Okay. <laughs> she was a descendant of David. They both were. Um, it also noted that the angel called her highly favored one. I don't think that was uh, vain praise just because she was a woman. The terms are used for people like Dan, uh, Daniel and Noah as well. And then also noting that she identifies herself as the maidservant of the Lord once she understands the semantics of what God was calling her to do. She had a very stable, a very strong relationship with the Lord, and it's... Uh, basically singled her out as the kind of person that God could use, unlike any other woman in history. And speaking of the uh, arts and entertainment and media, not like Pilgrim's Progress, but with the same theme, the TV show Smallville, which was a prequel to Superman's life, centers around this theme, the kind of people that would be selected to support Superman. God had an intent in choosing Mary and Joseph. They were called to it, too. Beautiful, Joe. Thank you, Sean. Great way to take us home. Thank you. We're out of time for today. We'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. Have a great evening. God bless you. Thank you for being part of Reason for Hope today. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.